0: Now. I go, on go back, on back and, and, and scrub down those garbage.
1: garbage All right, and we're in. Um, hi there, welcome to Love and Content. This is a new podcast in which I speak to artists and creators about pieces of art that mean a lot to them. Today, I'm talking to YouTuber. Soup Emporium, yes, Yes. that is his... Yes, that's my legal
0: government name. His government name. Um, (laughs) Soup Emporium is my father's name, you can call me Superboy. (laughs) Superboy. Do I have to? No. Okay, good. Soup
1: Emporium is a video essayist who has been on YouTube for about five months now, has made three videos, which at the time of this recording are on well over half a million views yeah, and steadily climbing. That's
0: which, that's terrifying. But in an exciting way, right? It's exciting excitingly terrifying. Like a roller coaster but you haven't got like the harness that holds you in.
1: That does not sound that fun, but I, I understand. Yeah, yeah, so that's just terrifying. <laughs> I could be flung from this ride at any moment, <laughs> which, yeah, sounds brilliant. Um, And you wanted to talk about Inside Number 9. I did. I did want to talk about Inside Number 9. So, yeah, I gave that a watch, Um, a beautiful six seasons and one special Halloween live show, which, yes. by the way, fantastic. But I'm sure we can get into it. Why don't you just tell us, first of all, why is it? That you wanted to talk about inside number nine?
0: It is... Oh, good question. Oh my god, it's almost like I should have prepared better. Mm-mm, uh-uh. Spontaneous. I, I, it's like our conversation. I wish I had a script. <laughs> um, I I have always liked the stuff that uh, Shearsmith and Pemberton have done. So I was raised on uh, League of Gentlemen when I was yay high. Which I realise saying yay high on a podcast. For the listeners a at
1: home, Super Emporium is pointing at his hand and it's about...
0: Yay it's, high! It's about yay high. It's about yay high. No, anyway, that's that's good for like an audible medium, exactly. Um, so yeah, like I've, I've I've been watching it for like a, a long time. It's like I've really enjoyed things like Psychoville and Inside Number Nine. is kind of an offshoot of of that. I like uh, darkly comedic things. I like things that are. Um, If you're, like, peeling back an onion almost. So why don't you tell us what Inside Number Nine is? So Inside Number Nine is is an anthology show. Um, All of the stories are self-contained for the most part, and they all occur in some place called... Which is the number nine. So it might be number nine restaurant. It might be a house that is number nine. It might be, like, number nine, like, as a changing room. It's all self-contained little stories and they usually have some sort of like dark twist at the end. One time it was a shoe. One time it was a shoe. That was, that was a pretty good one. Yeah, that was probably one of my, not one of my favourites, but like I definitely enjoy, I think all of them are good. I feel like there's something for everybody in, yeah. in the anthology. Well, this is something that
1: I really enjoyed about the show as a concept is the fact that it is so varied and not just in terms of the stories it tells because it's an anthology and obviously every week it's bringing new characters and new stories to it but in the tones because yeah it's something that could only be made by people who are at that point in their careers where mm. they genuinely couldn't give less of a shit about <laughs> about you know other people's approval anymore and like what's marketable mm. and they're just following the fun and so Episodes go down wildly different routes and it's so clear this is just a labour of love. You have some of them are like, yeah, these twisted, dark stories. Some of them are straight comedies. Um, There is one that's in a riff on a comedy of errors. It's all set in
0: a hotel floor, the floor number. Yeah, and it's all all done done in iambic pentameter. Which
1: is fantastic. And one of my favourites is the conceit is that it's the director's commentary on one of the um sort of very cheesy ghost story for christmas um, yeah. 1980s self-contained plots called the devil of christmas yes um which i thought was fantastic and it's such a was such a loving send up of <clears throat> that genre and its tropes and the sort of idiosyncrasies of it that never felt very vitriolic and never felt like it was trying to skewer anything but clearly something that they grew up with.
0: It wasn't like you hypothetically made an entire review of Pink Floyd's The Wall, for example, and called it a labour of love. Doug Walker, we're coming for you. Yeah, it's like Doug Walker, please respond. (laughs) Um no, it's like there was it was it was like a very playful ribbing on like a a genre that they clearly have taken a lot of heavy inspiration from in their own sort of dark comedy catalogue. I mean a lot of the a lot of it is um I hope that I hope they don't hear it. It's like our first podcast does monstrously well. I hope but like a lot of their sort of stuff is is I don't want to say masturbatory, but like a lot of it does kind of yes. navel gaze at what it is to make things. Yes. And I think what is interesting about it is sort of there is an introspection to a lot of their navel gazing a lot of the time. Sure. It's sort of like like assessing what it is to make stuff and be an entertainer and to you know like put things out in the world, and put comedy stuff out in the world, and letting go of those dreams and sort of you, you know the 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 joy of creating and then the pain of all yes. like
1: and you're right it is there is something in a very loving way, masturbatory about it, which again can only come from people who are so secure, yeah. in their identity and the fact that what they do is good, having. Won Baftas and British Comedy Awards for League of Gentlemen. Yeah, and Psychoville. At this point in their careers, they are, you know, very big deals. Yeah, I you think. know, and they they've earned the right to kind of yeah, toss yeah. themselves off a bit. Yeah, yeah, with yeah, what you're, they make. You're, you're a lot,
0: you know. Masturbating's fun. Sure. I exactly. I, I, I heartily recommend. Cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the, I have the sponsor of this say, episode. Yeah, the sponsor is masturbating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, and then. Um, Wuthering Heist, which is a season six opener, yeah, which is um, that one feels
0: explicit because like
1: like there, the s- there's there's a piece of um director camera monologue that literally says, "Yes, we are doing Commedia dell'arte mixed with a bank heist. It's the kind mm-hmm. of thing a drama teacher would have a wank to."
0: Yeah, it's like that is that one definitely feels more overt. I think like the the series six um I can't remember the name of the episode, but it's about the writer who had an unpopular. Um yes, uh, yeah. Simon, says, yes Simon says the fan Yeah, Simon says the fan of Yeah, and like that one feels more overtly master betray. Mm. Um and about again sort of I suppose the relationship between the people who make art and the people who invest as viewers as watchers, people who invest time into the thing that they mm. produce. Um well because they have such an
1: interesting relationship with their audience and I think any show that is at that level of trying to be an anthology show in 2021.
0: Yes, the year of our Lord. Yes. In the current year. But you can't do Tales
1: of the Unexpected anymore, where it's all predicated around sort of building, building, building. And there's a reversal. Yeah. Most of the Inside Number 9 episodes, especially the ones with a twist, are fun because there's a reversal on a reversal. Yeah. Uh, some sort of double bluff Yeah. of some kind. And I think there is something very... I don't know, modern or even postmodern about that, where it's, it's a show that is hyper-aware of the act of being watched. Yeah. You know, of taking the audience on a ride and saying, we know that you are watching this critically yeah. and attempting de- to decode it while you watch. So our goal is to stay one step ahead of you at all times.
0: Yeah. You know? I mean, well, the, the, the Facebook shitposting group is literally called Inside Number Nine Twist Posting. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like, you're, it's like it's a postmodern deconstruction of what it is to dupe your audience and there's like there's a shitposting group on Facebook. Every there's single discourse. every <laughs> single show
1: that I talk to you about, you always say, Oh, are you on the shitposting posting on Facebook? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, No, I'm not. But of course there is one. There is it's like,
0: it's like have you seen Chernobyl core posting? Oh my.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was the wildest one to me arguably the least funny show ever conceived of.
0: And there is a shit posting Facebook I bought. I bought a shirt that was based on a meme from that. It's probably the most cringe thing I've done. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I've done many cringe things. Mm -hmm. It's my biggest failure to exist. But I feel like buying a cringe shirt is, like, based on a meme that came from Chernobyl core posting, I think is definitely up there.
1: I mean, there's some... There's something so interesting about the way that they are a sort of old media. I'm saying old media when I say that. I refer to television and film and that in terms of not that it's outdated. The future is not now, old man. But that I'm talking to you, who is a YouTube creator, which is inarguably... Uh new media until a tiktoker comes and beats you to death while you sleep or something yeah oh boy but they have this relationship with their fans which is very hyper aware and sort of winks at them yeah in a way i mean in the um the podcast they do inside inside number nine yes yeah inside inside number nine which was basically a replacement for DVD commentaries. Because for the first few seasons, they did DVD commentaries. Yeah, because DVDs were still kind of... a, Exa- a thing. thing. And then they went, oh, no one buys DVDs, let <laughs> alone listens to commentaries," So they turned it into a uh, yeah, BBC, BBC Sounds podcast. podcast. Yeah, And in that, they talk about how they hide a hair in every episode. It's sort of an active engagement yeah. with your fan base, which... I think is so, a new thing,
0: I mean, because... I, yeah, I think it's interesting... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off Then I think it's interesting that it's... Um, a lot of people will talk about parasocial relationships, and I hate saying it because it immediately just makes me think, like, I don't know, there's sort of, like, a, I have a visceral reaction to it that I can't sure, quite Sure, because it's a big part of, like,
1: Tumblr discourse, and you don't yeah. want to overuse it.
0: Yeah, like, I don't... There's a website called uh, Tumblr.com. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, ah. But, yeah, so, like, I... I dislike it as a sort of term, but then also you can have more direct engagement with sort of like the people who view the stuff yeah. and the things you make. It's like you, you lose that sort of barrier in many respects. And television is is almost like a degree separated in that regard. It's like um, it's, it's it's eroding now, obviously, with yes. the rise of everyone needs like a social media. But like you have people who are uh, producing stuff on, on television who act as like a barrier between the audience and the sort of actors on screen and you like can't have that sort of like direct engagement wink and nod with the audience of like hiding like a thing on on the on the screen without eroding that wall yes. that television constructs
1: and i think to a degree with new shows you sort of have to erode that a little bit it's not yeah. like the glory days of television i think one of the great lines from bojack is something is it in the 80s when they're filming their sitcom it's like we're not in trouble unless we drop below an abysmal 30 million viewers a night yeah or something (laughs) because with the sort of infinitude of choice that is the modern world not just with hundreds and hundreds of channels but hundreds and hundreds of different media content suppliers of
0: different and all competing with each other as well
1: so you can't just rely on having millions of people tune into your thing anymore it has to be an active engagement you don't have yeah. viewers you have fans yeah you know and the- they they do have this critical awareness of having an
0: audience yeah there's a youtuber i really like um called dreg and he kind of engages with that directly in a lot of the things he makes on on his channel where he sort of says i want to make art and i want to make sort of like this product and and he's sort of having a sort dialogue with with himself where he's he's talking to himself like applying to be a public figure and he's saying like oh I'd like to create you know this sort of like post-satire meta-satire like deconstruction of like you know art and sort of like the exploration of what it is to create something um and I want people to enjoy that like the thing that I make as like an entity unto itself and the person that he's talking to in this like dialogue is like no you are the product when you were a public figure you are the product now and that's kind of like I suspect a virtue is the fact that you have to compete for lots and lots of eyeballs effectively in an era in a time where like choice is more abundant than ever. Like you have approaching near infinite shows to watch. Uh, in, near, in like almost everyone and their mom has a YouTube channel now, you know, like and they're all competing for well, that. Not all of them have over 30,000 <laughs> subscribers, <laughs> but yeah, like I mean. You know, people are competing for that sort of space. People are competing for that sort of, you know, attention. And part of gaining that sort of attention is building a community directly. And they do kind of expect Mm. on sort of like social media, and of which YouTube is, to have direct engagement with the people making. But
1: the ultimate difference being there is still that line. They are always going to be engaging with fans on their terms. Well, yeah, there's the... We'll make a little game for our fans where they have to spot their hair. Or yeah. We do a podcast, but it's very one-sided. You yeah. Know? I think the episode, Simon Says, in which a sort of Game of Thrones-like show creator is held at sort of blackmail by yeah. an obsessive fan, it's an interesting concept of them exploring the yeah the parasitic nature of these fans who... Desire these things and from feel like their creators. They're
0: owed them as well. Yes. Like I, I, I quite like that sort of. I quite like that episode partly because on the surface it is. It's like, oh, this is parallels between like David, like David Weiss and like the. That's the guy who made Game, like wrote Game of Thrones, like. DB Weiss the, and David Benioff. Yeah, the DB boys. You just like,
1: compounded their names into one super like one creator, Superman.
0: <laughs> David Weiss. David Weiss. <laughs> like yeah, but, like, it's the, I'm going to stick with that. Sure, right, sure. Right, so David Weiss, the one and only person who made Game of Thrones... That's right. ...and no one else. Um, like, that's the immediate parallel. It's like, you mm-hmm. think, okay, Game of Thrones ended on, like, a wet fart of a wet fart, and people were understandably upset, and, like, Reddit took to writing out, this is how it really should have ended. Um, and watching it, it's like, okay, there's the immediate sort of, like, surface-level take. It's like, okay, I see parallels. And then you dig into it, and it's it's a bit more like, well... As show writers, I feel like they could turn around and say, "Well, we we could choose to end this show anywhere we see fit, and we don't have obligations to mm. our audience other than to." And they did this with Westworld as well. It's like other than to like out twist and outsmart the people on mm. on sort of Reddit. And I think George R R. Martin said it's like, "Well, if you've written a book that sort of says that ends with the butler like doing it, and then someone figures out that the butler did it, you can either." Retinker your whole story or you can proceed with the plan mm-hmm. and have it that the butler did it and know that some people in your audience are going to know where you're going and he said that that is his preferred sort of route is like you have to accept that some people have just sure. guessed where things are going because in some take that as a compliment yeah you if have like, a
1: smart critical audience who if you have a very a good well-founded twist it's inevitable that some people are going to yeah, some, detect it before it happens yeah the problem comes in sort of constructing something where it is subverting expectations for yes. the sake of subverting. Yeah, and expectations. it's like
0: yeah, you thought you could outsmart us. How dare you! And mm. it's like, well, unfortunately, you've laid the groundwork to establish that the butler did it. And if you're going to try and outsmart your audience by saying, "Oh, actually, it was the chambermaid who did it," well, you know, you you're kind of pulling pulling that out of your ass mm. for like lack of better phrase. That um, that fan episode is almost them
1: a little bit going Haha, look at these poor sods making serialized television yeah they are beholden to having to create this whole narrative that if it doesn't end on a perfect note, concluding everything in the most satisfying way. They're in deep shit. Yeah, we're inside number nine. We can do whatever we want. Yeah, in like, thirty it's minutes a- from now, it's everything <laughs> the same. This is know? our
0: world, baby. Exactly. Well, and, and, I, I, I like I enjoyed that because the fans who cared like enough about it, it's like I think as a creator, it's like you can get very defensive about things that you make, and I feel like you can get very sort of guarded about like, well, no, fuck you. This is my thing, and I've made it as this, and I don't want to you know, deviate. I don't want to change it. It's like, I ended it the way I ended it because I, you know, wanted to do it. That is the vision that I had. And then it's a question of...
1: Because in that episode, for example, it it sort of tries to have its cake and eat it too in that it admits that both that this showrunner did a bad job and, like, the way that he ended this show, the fact that a lot of fans hated it, everyone hated it and it didn't do well and he should sort of admit to himself that he owed them a little bit but also that the fans are bad for
0: yeah that sort of thing that he owed yeah and it's an exploration of like what do you actually owe to Mm. um the people who consume the thing that you make and in turn what do they owe to you and it's like do they respect the fact that it was ultimately your your vision and that like it's segregated from their opinion and it's like they have to respect the thing that you did or is it the the case is like well when something goes into the world it's not really yours anymore like it becomes the the property of the collective if you like and if it becomes the property of like the collective then people are allowed to have opinions and inputs and think it should have ended like this and it should have tied like this and it should have worked you know like i would have done that and people are allowed to have those sorts of conversations and i think it is completely fair but it's a different dynamic when you approach
1: youtube yeah because like we were saying in film and television there is this barrier there is the writer and the director and they are sort of protected in a big way from the outside reception from the fans there is a lot of i think the producer's role and the executive producers their role is sort of you worry about you, I'll worry about the network and the fans and everything. And it's all predicated around protecting them from outside influences and forces that might force them to take it in different directions. Whereas YouTube, the idea of engagement with fans and audiences is baked into it. The first thing it ever was, a video, like button, and a comment section. Yeah. And that's it. That's everything about the channel is a direct link between the independent creator and their fans yeah so you talk about how much do you owe to the people who consume your content do you engage with comments how much I, story I, do you say by them
0: i mean i engage with comments it's like it's okay so it's it, it's weird because I, I i feel like any sort of person who makes things is their own worst critic and i do think that it's sort of interesting to in, in, i do like sort of engaging with sort of like dialogue sometimes the things that people say is just like it's it it's crap basically it's like they are needling you i guess to try and sure. get a response sometimes um and it's sort of remembering that you don't have to stick your or in on everything sometimes you have to recognize that language is not particularly clear it's 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 fuzzy like i will say a thing it goes into the world. Like, I built a thing in my brain. I put it into the world. Someone will take the thing I built, put it into their brain, and, like, reconstruct the meaning I was trying to impart onto it. Sure. And, and things can get lost in translation there. Or, like, you omit certain things because you don't think it's relevant. And another person will think, well, hang on, I think you should have included this. And sometimes you just weren't particularly clear in the things that you, you made. It's like the first thing that I made, a lot of people um kind of said hey that sort of conclusion feels like it comes from nowhere and it's sort of like i, I think i think they sort of they have a case there to be honest i think it does kind of come a little bit out of the blue and i could have spent more time establishing how i got to that that end point if that makes sense
1: my dear listener i am shaking my head
0: <laughs> <laughs> super emporium's
1: first video saving mr house and how to save saving
0: Mister. <laughs> what's it called <laughs> Hang on. I, I'm changing
1: that We're name. running it back. We're running it back. Super Emporium's first video, The Ideology of Mr. House <laughs> oh, so and How to great, Save sweetie. <laughs> yeah. I have it written down here because it gets muddled up in my head a lot.
0: Yeah. Is... No, I'm changing it to Saving Mr. House. That's so much better. <laughs> oh, good. Well, pay me yeah. royalties Starring then. Tom Hanks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. That's what that's from,
0: isn't yeah, it? Like... The Walt Disney movie. Oh, Christ. Oh, he's, he's, he's the kind man who owns the strip. It's...
1: The ideology of Mr. Howard is a very, very insightful analysis of Fallout New Vegas and the manifold political ideologies in the game and where they take influence from real life source of democracy. Uh what would the is, Singapore model be? I suppose
0: autocratic capitalism with the way that you would you would call it. Exactly. Um,
1: and how that sort what the game has to say about yeah. the
0: functionality of those
1: those systems. Yeah. And I think what's great about the way that you approach it isn't, it doesn't come from, I'm going to rant about this game and the problems. You take the philosophy of the game and you talk about how it applies to the real world.
0: Yeah, I still think I could have done a better sort of job. On the, I did actually cut a lot out of the conclusion, which is kind of why when people said, hey, that kind of feels a bit left field, um, I could kind of see where where they're coming from. So like, I feel like sometimes like, a lot of the criticism you get is just kind of people who either want sort of attention from you or are they just disagree with with you. Um, you could you could sum up a lot of discourse to paraphrase um, Sarah Marshall. Oh, my favorite my favorite fruits are apple, banana, and mango and then someone will come in and say you forgot orange and it's like no that's your favorite fruit and that's that's the thing is how much
1: of it is in good faith yeah. versus how much of it yeah. is in bad faith but, i think
0: and sometimes you do get people good but like i've had a fair few like linguists pop up on the on the sort of uh, cocoa video and sort of like uh, like i i was quite persuaded by like sort of chomsky's view of language if you like that is sort of like a, a acquisition device in the brain that kind of predisposes us to to language and it's sort of for me it's sort of like a lot of the views on say particularly tactile languages so like touch based languages and signing languages they are perfect sort of like vectors for language like phonology like grammatical structure all that sort of stuff um and they also do tend to emerge spontaneously so like you remove people's ability to hear language still emerges you remove like sight and and hearing particularly in deafblind communities um like more current contemporary research seems to suggest that actually no, like touch-based languages where you like touch hands or arms uh, and feel the environment around you produce like phonological structures. They produce grammar uh, and they like, they arise through like any medium that can carry them. So I'm persuaded by sort of like Chomsky's argument in that regard. Like I find it compelling, but I've had sort of like linguists come on who are non-Chomsky linguists sort of say, this is very my research. I'm like, this is my like two cents of someone who's in the academic bubble of linguistics and that's very interesting uh and to to engage in because it's you know that's sort of like appreciable discourse if you like and you have some people who say like you use this term like i would argue it's actually probably more appropriate to use this for like this reason and that's why and i think sometimes people who can like sort of say like that wasn't particularly clear and i couldn't follow what you were going for i feel like the book does kind of stop with you if you weren't precise enough with what you were saying and i feel like that is sort of like good to listen to because as as just like a bloke on the internet i i'm not infallible there are blind spots that i have there are things that i will miss i try and sort of like accommodate them as best as i can because i live in like an uncertain sort of bubble if you like where it's sort of difficult to sort of pass what is what is sort of correct particularly when there is sort of like lots of frameworks you can view the world through but i will still come sort of blind with blind spots and i do think it's a valuable to listen to people who have competing views to you you know if it's not just like a oh you said this thing and i disagree and it's like that unfortunately is like the majority of the
1: discourse well that's the problem is you're gonna go and read through all the all the comments yeah It's it's like someone who reads all of their fan mail or something and something that we talked about before is the idea that the way that a brain is structured is you can get 10 compliments and one insult and yeah. the only thing you're going to record is the intro. Yeah, like that registers. You know? So the amount of feedback you can have, positive or yeah. constructive, isn't there a worry that even when it can be something very good for you know continuing the practice of making these videos the best way possible, are you worried about it eroding your brain, reading all of this negative rot
0: I just think because people want to get noticed? I think it is possible. I think, I think another sort of concern I have, and I'm sort of worried about voicing it, um is that like you'll do something and then someone like you'll get like a sizable block of people who point out and say oh like you missed out this sort of like thing and like turns out that's wrong and then like because you have a volume of people saying it it's like oh i should go and investigate this sort of thing and then it turns out that actually no you were just like they were just kind of either trolling or they were misled and then are passing on misinformation to you and i think it's sort of important to be critical of information that you receive, whoever kind of gives it to you. Now, like, the upside of that is that it does kind of become content ideas. Like, I was chatting about, like, I had, like, a flood of comments on Coca saying, like, oh, did you know, like, Helen Keller was a fraud too? And I was like, no, that can't be true. Uh, But then I had, like, a volume of people saying, like, okay, well, maybe I did, like, miss a factoid somewhere. Maybe I missed, like, a piece of information. I don't know, like, an inordinate amount about helen keller so i will go and investigate i'll go and dig around and see what i can find and then it turns out no actually you were right to sort of say what you said about helen keller it's just that everyone else is being passing on the same bit yeah of misinformation. Pass, passing on the misinformation that was generated from tiktok and then you go digging further and it's like oh actually no this was a thing that sort of plagued her, her whole life and it's the exact same iteration on tiktok and so it's there, not evidence there's
1: this whole new generation right of Young kids, whose their version of flat Earth is yeah, the idea their version
0: that... of flat Earth is is that Helen Keller was faking it, or that Anne Sullivan was using her as a parrot? And you dig around like the actual sort of information, it's like no, that wasn't that wasn't the case at all. It's just ableism, and it's like you actually look into it. It's like what is your evidence? So, and it's like well, how did she fly a plane? How did she write twelve books? I don't get it. Therefore, she couldn't have. And it's like no, actually, it is very like. You know, we have people in the world today who who are deafblind who write books. One of them is a human rights lawyer. I forget her name now, but she's a human rights lawyer. And she said, yeah, I I write using a braille typewriter, you know, like Helen Keller did. And it's just incredibly boring answers. It's like, well, why don't we see more Helen Kellers? And it's like, well, simply put, Helen Keller came from quite a privileged family um, who, you know, owned a cotton plantation in the South. Uh, And then they said, lost most of their wealth during the Civil War, which is really to say, lost slaves. (laughs) And then they were able to keep Helen from being institutionalized. And because they had the means, they were able to hire Anne Sullivan. And Anne Sullivan was able to sort of work with Helen on a full-time basis. And that, simply put, is not available to most children who are deafblind, particularly if they're from poor backgrounds. And of the time, they were usually institutionalized. And they were institutionalized right up until like the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties. And that's why you don't see more people like Helen Keller, for example, or Laura Bridgman, or there's a a Russian woman, um, who was at the Soviet Institute for the Deaf-Blind. And it's the same sort of story. It's like all of them had like sort of intimate relationships with their, their teachers in the sense that they could bond and build that from that bonding, like go on to acquire the foundations of language and eventually learn to speak and to read and to write and that is the the very boring answer is that just, she just like a dedicated teacher who could like stay with her for years and teach her these skills and she had the means to be able to afford a teacher who could stay with them unlike most deafblind children who after like getting rubella and going deafblind would just be institutionalized because they didn't have means so inside number 9 is an anthology series <laughs> <a fantasy> <laughs> You can find it on
1: iPlayer. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, that's, <laughs> it's fantastic yeah. that you have found something. I assume this may or may not come up in a video scene. Oh,
0: absolutely, yes. It's like, it's literally just... Because like, I don't want to say we're being gaslit by the comments, but when you get enough people sort of saying a thing and you're like, shit, did I fuck up? I'm going to, like, dig around. And you find out, oh, no, actually, it's just people like otherwise educated and well-intentioned people pushing misinformation that unfortunately has like a root in ableism and whether or not it was like an intentional ableism it's still rooted in it so it seems like that decision
1: to read the comments in a good-natured effort to engage with criticism has actually led you down a rabbit hole of this could be something that i could talk yeah so which might itself create some sort of Slew of hate-slinging comments that I can oh, yeah, then turn into another. That'll idea. be fun.
0: Like I think, and sometimes comments are just really funny. Like even if it's like people I like, sort of like, you know, I have like political biases, just like everybody does. Sometimes you'll get comments that are just funny. Um, there was a guy who was like commented on the cocoa video, and he just said, "Okay, this doesn't improve. Like this doesn't disprove the ability for bees to represent themselves in court." And I, <laughs> that was that was great. That was one of my favorite comments. Uh, so sometimes you just get like little little gems that come like just that come is, out. Like yeah, that. that's lovely, and yeah. it's
1: something that Steve Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith, <laughs> creators of Inside Number Nine, are missing out on. Just yeah. steering the shit back to what we were supposed to do. Exactly. <laughs> we have we have gone off the rails.
0: <laughs> no, no. Well, you know,
1: we wanted to talk about self-contained yeah pieces of art, and I like the fact that you have sort of, be it purposefully or not, you have bucked classification with the videos that you make. Yeah. Your first video being um, engaging with Fallout New yeah. Vegas. And the second one is about how debunking the myth that De Beers has a diamond monopoly. And if you go down, you leave a comment that says something along the lines of RIP to all the gamers yeah. who subscribed, <laughs> assuming this was a gaming channel. <laughs> What's up now? Um, I mean, was there any real... Impetus behind choosing these three videos: the Fallout video, then the De Beers video, then the video analyzing Coco the Gorilla. They're all very insightful and informative, but all come from completely different angles. Like, I mean, the Fallout one is politics and economics. Yeah. The De Beers one is there's a big volcanology section. Yeah. Because you actually have a masters. Yeah. In I volcanology. I,
0: I got talking to a guy who like did the did the masters at at. at the same like, place that I got my master's. Mm. So he, he did it in Bristol and he, like, he, he DM me and was just like, hey, do they still call um, the, the geology students Morlocks? And I was like, they do. Because <laughs> <laughs> ab- above the geology sort of like department, the like earth sciences department in Bristol was the law students and they get the nice bit of the Wills building and we're confined to the basement. And that's why they call us Morlocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, was there any reason that you chose
1: those particular videos in that order?
0: Oh, I'm sorry, I'm shaking my head. It just like the... <laughs> visual
1: media. <laughs> was it was it just that those were the ones that your thoughts on were most developed?
0: I think I think it was that they were most developed. Simply, like I mean, I have like loads of sort of like scripts because I'll get interested in something and then I'll write mm. down and I go down like these old like rabbit holes just kind of on my on my own. Um, re- really, is sort of like part of it is that like I like and uh, like anthology stuff in Mm. general but like yeah it's just kind of i had ideas i had feelings i wanted to express them i wasn't thinking about a particular niche that i could fill uh or or anything of that sort of sort i suppose like the closest niche you could argue that we come close to is that sort of there is a an impetus to pretend that particularly things like science can be divorced from sort of like the wider sort of social Mm. political systems that influence it and that isn't actually always the case I think most people have a wide range of interests. I don't think people themselves are defined by, like, one thing. And I see it sort of constantly when people are saying, like, oh, what is... Like, my my USP is this. It's like, I will do videos about climate science and climate change. Um, and I will... Or, like, I'm a political live streamer. Or I will do videos that are exclusively on, on philosophy and, like, various parts of philosophy. Or I will... I will just stream five nights at Freddy's until I die. And those are like all sort of like niches and, and general advice you kind of get uh, as I sort of like picked up is via osmosis is just that, like, oh yeah, pick a brand. Like, find a brand for you and stick to it. And for me, it's just kind of like, well, no, it feels incredibly restricting. Absolutely. I am interested in lots of different things. I would wager that most people have diverse interests in lots of different things and wouldn't be in, like, aren't just, like, there for one thing. And, and that's kind of why, sort of, my channel becomes a place to talk about anything and everything. It's just simply because, hey, I'm interested in this. I like talking about this thing. There's no rhyme or reason to what got me sort of interested in this thing. But the fact is I am, and now I'm presenting it to you. So I don't think there is ever going to be like a theme oh, that's fantastic on the channel, to be honest. It's brilliant. And Much like Inside Number 9. That, wow, Simon. <laughs> a seamless yeah. reintroduction.
1: Uh, hey, is that a segue going past? <laughs> <it>? <laughs> because Inside Number 9, yeah, it's an anthology, but something that's very cool about it that doesn't really share with any other anthology series that I can think of is the complete lack of tonal, yeah. like, centre. Yeah. Because it, everything has some sort of centre to it. Black Mirror is technology-oriented and yes. it has this sort of unerring tone of gravity or yeah. ambition to it in the stories that it aims to tell. The Twilight Zone is a thought experiment, yeah, you know, and it has this... um it's always tightly wound around a point, be it if a character study or a situational study. And, you know, something like Tales of the Unexpected, which is fantastic, by the way. I, found, I fell down that not seen it. rabbit hole when I was, you know, preparing to talk about this. Because it's the one sort of anthology show that I suppose you could see the most direct link to from inside number nine. Because it's another show where the only sort of promise is... There will be something that's unexpected yeah. happening. And the first season is adapted all from Roald Dahl stories and mm. which is brilliant. Yeah, because it's like you don't think that dude was fucking unhinged. <laughs> he was a
0: nut. Oh, it's weird, it's like you just got like left field information about Roald Dahl. It's like, oh yeah, I wrote like ideas on like fake thigh, and you're like, I'm sorry, Dahl, run that past me again. <laughs> and then and then he would just come out with like something ragingly anti-Semitic, and you're like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. But none of that in inside. No, Night. none of that in inside. See that family f- times. There
1: is no centre to it. There yeah. is like even the best people can say is, oh, it has twists and it's sort of darkly comedic, but neither of those really feels that hitting the nail on the head because no. that doesn't recur in every episode. The the only center is the author. Yeah. You know, this is the thing about any anthology show, to be fair, is the fact that because you don't have the familiarity of recurring characters or recurring situations, the thing that everyone knows about anthology is the author. It's yeah. why Rod Serling made an appearance at the beginning of every Twilight Zone episode. The first season of Tales of the Unexpected starts with Roald Dahl sitting in an armchair, um, <laughs> looking at the fire, and he, which is nuts, by the way, yeah. because he doesn't give a shit about what they're doing in this show because he's already made his money. He has nothing to prove. So whereas in the Twilight Zone, for example, they he would go, greed is a funny thing. It can exist between the summits of a man's hopes and the pit of his... No, sorry, that's just the intro to the Twilight Zone. Yeah. But, but Roald Dalt didn't care at all. So he would just sit in, sit in his chair at the beginning of every episode and go, this is quite an interesting story. Sometimes it takes me quite a long time to write a story, even if the story is short. Let's see what happens. And that's just the opening of yeah. episode. <laughs> and then even, even something like Black Mirror, we all know that it's created, well, a lot of us know that it's created by Charlie Brooker because he's, yeah. that's the only sort of consistent stream in all of it. And Pemberton and Shearsmith reoccur in every episode as, or almost every episode as yeah, actors. Just- and I don't know if you notice this, but in the credits of the episodes... It doesn't say, it says the episode title, it doesn't say written
0: by. No. It um, just says by. Yeah. Like it's a book. Yeah. No, yeah. it's like, I also think that's interesting to, to pivot slightly, sure. um, is that uh, things like, like Black Mirror, the Twilight Zone, I'm not too familiar on Roald Dahl's thing, but I I'm going to Oh, it's a fucking trip! Man. I am gonna have a punt, like a punt at like Tales of the Unexpected. They usually express some sort of anxiety, like Black Mirror, is sort of like Charlie Brooker has. And I know it's the meme. It's like, oh, what if your mum ran all berries? <laughs> Christ, that's my British accent. <laughs> that is racist, and
1: <laughs> I would like to apologise to yeah. all the British people <laughs> listening
0: who might be offended. <laughs> what if your mum ran on berries? all Crocky or Australia. Right, so like. But, like, that's his anxiety. Like, that's the meme. But, like, he has genuinely sort of expressed anxiety. It's like, Black Mirror is the name of, like, a phone. Like, the the sort of darkness of the screen reflecting back mm. at you. That's why it's called, co- like, the screens are like Black Mirror. And I think one of the first things he wrote for The Guardian was, was like, expressing is, like, I don't like screens becoming a bigger presence in our lives. I, don't, I think it's things like social media are sort of like an un checked experiment like one of the largest scale experiments into sort of like human psychology and sort of like how we will respond to constant stimuli and i don't think anybody's thought about it and that's like a fair i know that's a bit what if phones but too much but like i think that's a reasonable sort of anxiety to have and that is expressed in the things that he makes and sometimes it's that technology can do good. Sometimes the technology does bad. Usually it's people who are acting. Is that the, the technology is, like, neutral. Mm. And it's sort of the human sort of social structures that use the technology for good or for ill. Um, and then the Twilight Zone, again, is sort of like the stuff of the Twilight Zone I've watched. And I can't j- not think of, like, Futurama as the scary door. Yes, absolutely. It's like...
1: The person who does the intro to
0: the scary door... Yeah, is,
1: lives rent-free in my brain every time I watch an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah,
0: but, like, but like they have similar anxieties. Like, one of them is about, like, a, like the guy who survives, like, a nuclear war. Mm. And then he's like, oh, I can finally read all my books. And then the last scene is, that like, his glasses break. Mm. And he's just like, that's not fair. It's... And it's really, but like, you know, those sorts of, like, expressions of, like, particular anxieties about modernity, if you like, or, yeah, like, exactly. the unknown. And using
1: these sort of... Hypothetical unknowns. It's always as allegory, you know. Yeah. Like, um The monsters are due on Maple Street, which is about Cold War paranoia through the lens of what if aliens who look just like us came to Earth. Yeah. Which is it's it's a it's a wonderful show in that way, but there is exact there is always this sort of anchoring to it. But inside Number Nine, again, there is no anchoring. The anchoring is we want to have fun. Yeah. And we're gonna do anything we want. And I think a lot of the truly great and memorable episodes are the ones where they do something entirely new. Yeah. Such as uh The Devil of Christmas, which yeah. I think we mentioned, or Zanzibar, the Zanzibar a, a
0: Quiet Night In is like the second mm. episode of the first series and there is virtually no dialogue in it. It's all like pantomime mm. silent acting. And that is that is fantastic. That's such it's one of my favorite episodes and it is yeah, like, there's no, like, through line. There's, like, a quiet night in. is like, completely disconnected from, say, The Twelve Days of Christine, mm. um, which is completely disconnected from Sardines, which, like, the first episode is yes. completely disconnected from... Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the episode. It's with the monkey's paw sort of like plot, like the tempting section. fate. Tempting fate. It is. It is like completely disconnected from all of those. The only sort of link they have to another thing they've made is that in I think in series five they have a character who was in Psychoville, Mister Jelly. Mr. Yeah, yeah, and he appears. For those in...
1: listening at home, I watched all thirty-seven episodes of this show in one, <laughs> one week, and it turned my brain into soup. I can't Emporium remember my own of mother's soup. face. <laughs> An
0: emporium, an of emporium
1: soup. of soup. Wow. Um, he's available on YouTube.com yes. if you have your smartphone or Black Mirror with you.
0: Yes. Yeah, so you type HTTPS. All right. settle down. <laughs> <out. laughs> but yeah, I think not only it's just like not only the twist aspect of it. I think it is because it's like the the reversal on the twist that you sort of expect. Um, that is definitely something that I have tried to incorporate into things that i i i make um because
1: the interesting thing as well is that i was thinking about the idea of being a multi-hyphenate
0: go on which
1: which is what shearsmith shearsmith and are they are writer actors and in in old media in film and tv if you're a multi-hyphenate if you do if you're a writer producer writer director well, not so much writer-producer, yeah. do yeah. uh, writer-director, um, yeah. actor-director, anything like that. It's a cause for, like, applause and yeah. people view you as this, like, great heroic figure. But in YouTube, that's what you have to be. You don't have yeah, a choice. Like, you have to you be a multi-hyphenate. To, you have, to, you have edit.
0: to Like, unless you're, like... Unless you're the size where you can kind of get sort of producers and sort of side animators and and, and such, like, you kind of do have to be everything mm. um which is yeah you are the the writer and then the recorder and then the editor and <laughs> the the animator or like the, the clip splicer you yeah like it is that you have to do do sort of everything so i do i, I, I and you have I, to be a performer as yeah well. a performer. you have to
1: be lucky enough to be you know charismatic and have sort of this on-screen presence yeah some people aren't lucky enough to have Um, And I think if anyone has seen Supermporum's videos, you'll
0: agree that he sizzles. Uh, I mean, dude, no, I I hard disagree.
1: Okay, well, you'll just have to watch him and find out.
0: (laughs) Uh-oh, self-promotion. Oh, Oh, Uh, oh God, is it possible to cringe so hard the carbon in your body turns to diamond? I don't know.
1: But, yeah, I mean, it's a lot to ask of anyone, but that's kind of the expectation for young people who are going into new media. Yes. You... It's kind of a comment on, like, going into the workforce as a whole in that you have to be sort of proficient in a dozen different yeah, things to like even stand you, a chance. Yeah, you have
0: to have many different skills. It's like, well, the job I'm shifting to is coding. Um, and I I don't... Like, my, my main experience is, is working in the environment sector. Um, researcher, sort of, like, I've worked for, like, civil service, I've worked for um, various other stuff, which is kind of semi, like, tangentially related, but it's kind of why... I want to sort of keep the as as successful as it seems to be at present I would probably prefer to keep it as like a like a hobby and keep it sort of sure separated but anyway um yeah and like it is kind of expected of you that you'd have lots of lots of like different skills that you can apply to lots of different areas I think there's also the question of like a lot of work is just inherently um unstable these these days Mm. um and I think a part of that is sort of you have to kind of be a jack of all, of all trades moving into it. And weirdly enough, it's sort of the jack of all trades that is being a YouTuber ugh, is, is you know, as, as sort of like a valid of a skill set is like learning how to code or learning how to map or learning how to conduct species surveys or learning how to, um, you know, like drawing from my own sort of experience there. Sure. But yeah, like it is, it is commendable, I think, to have a wide range of skill sets. And I suppose not that everybody chooses instability but i think it ties back into sort of a wider idea of people are multitudes they contain multitudes and and like just as people will have various interests lots of people will have different sort of like skills or things that they want to learn things that they are motivated to learn i have enjoyed animating i've loved to like have learned how to like animate i'm kind of at a point now where i feel like my animations are okay for what they are it's never going to be say as expressive as harry partridge for example or like something that you would see on nickelodeon but it is i i think sort of a thing that i've wanted to learn and have gotten better at learning and learning the the mechanics of how they work and i've I've learned that because i've wanted to learn it if that makes sense but i forgot where i was going with this my brain just hit like an eject button midway through that sentence (laughs) (laughs) well you you want to be
1: everything in one because that's sort of what you have to be to get anything off the ground in this sort of new climate. Yeah. Where there's so much more of an expectation on you to be able to be your own sort of multimedia empire. I sometimes get so mad when I read, like, articles or, like, I interview people. I spoke to um, a screenwriter when I was at my undergrad, um who's fairly successful and he writes for a few uh, BBC shows. And I said to him, how did you get you a start? And I was expecting him to say, I don't know, something along the lines of like, oh, yeah, well, what you need to do is you need to join this un- internship scheme or like here are the contacts that it's helpful to kind of make. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, I wrote a script and then my brother found it in a drawer uh, like <laughs> a year later and then he sent it off to a now defunct BBC <laughs> reading program and they said, we like this and they made it. You know? <laughs> and then I read um, John Swartzwelder did an interview yeah. who was one of the writers for The Simpsons, arguably the best writer for The Simpsons. Oh. And I don't know,
0: david cohen's pretty david
1: cohen's pretty great as He's well there. uh and he said he sta- he got to start writing snl and he said something along the lines of oh well i sent them a few jokes on an a4 piece of paper yeah and they hired me and my blood
0: boiled it is it is an in- incredible the level of luck Mm. that it's sort of like random chat like there there are like people who i watch like channels that i watch that are like really good i'll, I'll give them a shout as i as i quite like little hoot i quite like is uh, an irish person who uh, they do a show called like the liberal cook um and and i really enjoy the stuff that they make and it is shocking to me that sort of like it's it's very well made very well produced they're like clearly having like a lot of a lot of fun with like cheering the scenery, um, and it, it kind of doesn't sort of get eyeballs on it for lack of a better word. It's like it's like people don't like it, it it isn't like sort of like pushed into every sort of screen in every home, and there's no controlling that. It's like now I think to a degree you you do have like lots of people who will make stuff and it is like not particularly well produced and it doesn't get picked up uh, because daddy google and his magic algorithm is ultimately monitoring the hundreds of millions of eyeballs who are going through daddy google's websites every single day sure. and i think you know it's sort of seeing what they watch and then sort of like crafting um recommendations based on what they watch and what will keep their attention and what will hold them on the websites and there are there is a lot of stuff on on YouTube that is just sort of like not going to hold people's attention. Um and I would argue sort of like my stuff included, it's like it's not going to be for everyone. It's not gonna hold everybody's attention. Exactly. Um so like a part of your skill is like a part of skill is like is required, sort of like there is an entry level of skill, but it doesn't guarantee success. It's like through your skill luck is made manifest. But you do need a very big luck component that you don't really have much control over. And I think that is an oft not talked about thing when people go into making stuff is like, you will roll the dice on a thing that you make and it will fail, or it will take time to kind of build momentum. It's like, I don't know, like a train that accelerates exponentially. And that's kind of okay. And it's sort of, if you want to get better at making stuff, then it's very difficult to get sort of live feedback in the moment, if that makes sense. So a lot of it is sort of like you have to hit the ground running and you have to be good kind of out of the gate unless you're going to go in for the long haul and just be very sort of like very slowly improve and get better. Otherwise, you have to be good sort of like immediately out the gate. And even then, there's no guarantee that there isn't like, like a mortar isn't just going to hit the track that you're running on sort of like midway through mm-hmm. and like cause your whole progress to sort of collapse, even though you were, you know, Again, sort of like you have the the, the skill and the talent to succeed. And that mortar could be PewDiePie does
1: something anti-Semitic and gets an entire tier of YouTube videos demonetized. Yeah, it's like, hooray! But the only saving grace we have that maybe they didn't have 20, well, they didn't have 20, 30, 40 years ago when Conan O'Brien was getting a job because he called up a random producer and asked him if they were looking for writers is that... There are so many different outlets for your creativity now. The problem is that it's being flooded. But the reason it's being flooded is there are so many people who have had this creativity bursting in them for such a long time. Yeah. And only very, very recently has that been something that is available for more than the very, very few.
0: Yeah, I'd say, like, for for all the problems that I think YouTube has, I think one of the main sort of... And this is the thing I've gotten interested in, is that sort of one of the utopian ideals of, like, the early Internet and of early Google was the democratization of data. Mm. It was, you know, everybody can converse on the platform that is the Internet and there are no hierarchies and there are no sort of, like, structures. We will all converse as equals, is the dream of the the utopian dream of the internet, if you like. And I think um for good and for ill, it does kind of provide a space where anybody can put something out there and it can sink or swim and there's no real control over whether or not it sinks and swims, unfortunately. But you do have an outlet for a voice. I was thinking about this as like sort of like Twitter in a lot of a lot of cases. Sometimes you get movements that are like, Oscars So White, which allows sort of, like, um, like black communities to effectively organise around a particular sort of hashtag, otherwise disparate sort of, like, people can organise around this sort of, like, unifying hashtag and then sort of, like, exert direct pressure Onto the institution that is yes. the Oscars, something that would not have been something an that option. wouldn't have been an option. What did something we that have back have... in the nineties, A <laughs> oh, that, mail-in yeah, letter like, campaign. I'll send a carrier pigeon, <laughs> and it's like, and it's like, that's one right. right, old people, yeah. you'll be
1: dead soon.
0: Yeah, and like, and now it's just sort of like, oh no, it's like if I put like a tweet and a hashtag and it gets trending, is like, it's going to kick up the chain, and eventually, I don't know, Martin Scorsese is going to see it, you know? He doesn't. Have I don't know. Twitter. He doesn't. Have Twitter. <laughs> you see those fucking <laughs> coke
1: bottle glasses <laughs> he's working with? <laughs>
0: Martin, please give me a job if you're listening to me. Yeah, this. it's like, hey Martin. I, love you. I have a script, I could send it to yeah. you if you prefer, but He's like, You come here often. <laughs> um But yeah, so like sometimes that happens. And then sometimes you'll get something like, I don't know, gamergate and it's sort of like that's um Yeah, for good You you, well, for you had Ill. a panicked look at the mic when I said that. But... <laughs> but yeah, so like like, you know, for good and for ill, like I think the internet does kind of give people the ability to organise and the ability to exert more pressure than they otherwise would have. I, I think power dynamics being what they are, it still kind of cuts in favour of the dominant ones in our society, but I think the internet still can give people that sort of like voice uh, to exert pressure they otherwise wouldn't be able to.
1: Exactly, yeah. and in the words of Charlie Brooker, what if your nan ran on batteries? What if your nan <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, guys. Uh this has been Love and Content, a new podcast. I, I Oh sorry it- we
0: can't we can't go with the the paid and exposure, can we?
1: No, well, see, I had a different idea for the name of this podcast, which is taken but Oh, you bastards. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Paid and exposure, the podcast, give them a few listens because they only have one episode. Yeah. And I think they could they could use the love keep going guys you got it um i've been talking to super emporium whose videos are all available on
0: youtube dot com.
1: youtube.com.org or dot biz they are that's not true
0: don't no, no, don't no, type don't, in those domains don't, don't look at the biz they are genuinely
1: fantastic well researched insightful and i could not recommend them enough
0: pew pew